Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now enjoy the message. This past week, Jessica, my wife and I, we've been doing a little dreaming. See, it's about this time of year that we start dreaming about possible summer vacation spots. And that's not atypical for us to do that in October, November, because it's about this time that as a church staff, we gather together and we cast vision and dreams about what do we wanna see God do in 2023? And I'm telling you right now, big things are coming. How many of you guys are excited about the Cindy Ramsey Center that's already well underway? My goodness. I mean, that is just barely you know, breaking the surface as far as what God is going to do in 2023. So as we're talking about these things, we have a chance as a family to sit down and go, okay, what does the summer look like in 2023? And where are those little windows of time that we may be able to sneak away just for a little while and, and enjoy a little uh, family vacation? And as we were having these conversations, we couldn't help but reminisce about some of the family vacations we've been on over the course of many years. And, and as we were reminiscing, we were reminded of our first trip to Disney World in 2016. And I brought a picture to show you to prove that that actually happened. So let's take a look at the picture up in the, oh, look how cute they are. And also my kids too, they're pretty cute as well. There we are in front of the Magic Kingdom, it's all lit up. I gotta tell you that this vacation, it was so magical and miserable. If you've been with, uh, with kids, you know what I'm talking about. Come on, somebody. Look, I, I don't want really for a second for you to feel bad for me. I, I, I am overall grateful to have had that time with my family. We made some memories. It was overall a good time. However, there was this ominous cloud that was cast over our Disney experience. It's a cloud called chronic complaining. I'm tired. I'm hungry. How much longer do we have to wait? My legs are tired. How come I can't have two Mickey Mouse ice cream bars? Why will Ariel just come on out here and take a picture with us already? And that's just the stuff that I complained about. <laughs> Not to mention my kids. Here we were, the happiest place on earth, and yet <laughs> we found ourselves very unhappy. Why? Because of all of the complaining. Here's the subject of my talk with you today. Conquering a complaining spirit. Woo! Coming for everybody today, including myself. And it's so true that we all struggle with this from time to time. Now, when I think about complaining, I, I allow my mind to immediately go to the same place every time. It's, it's in the, the book of Exodus with the nation of Israel. If you remember that story, here are the Israelites. They, they've been slaves for 400 years in captivity under the harsh, oppressive rule of Pharaoh. And they, they complain, they cry out to God and God hears their prayers. And, and what does he do? He sends miracle after miracle after miracle to meet their needs and bring them out of slavery and into the land of Canaan. Now you probably remember this story. So let's just review. So God, the first miracle does is he sends how many plagues? Okay, maybe you don't know the story. All right, this is an interactive sermon. How many plagues did the Lord send on the nation of Egypt? 10. He sent 10 plagues. Pharaoh begrudgingly obliges 
and allows a couple million slaves to leave bondage and follow their God toward the wilderness until he gets buyer's remorse, if you remember that. And he mounts up his chariot and his military and they are in hot pursuit of the nation of Israel. And they come up against the, the Red Sea and, and then God does what? He parts the Red Sea and they walk on what type of ground? Dry ground. Thank you, sir, for participating. They walk on dry ground. They walk on dry ground. And then as, as Pharaoh and his army is following after them, God closes the water over them to vanquish their enemies. How many of you know that's a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us? That we have a painful past of bondage to sin, but when we follow after God, looking to Jesus, and we pursue him with all we are in faith, what does God do? He delivers delivers us from sin and darkness, and he crushes our painful past that was riddled with sin once and for all. So there they are, making their way toward the wilderness. And what does God do? He provides for them. He gives them manna from heaven. There's your bread in the morning, every morning. He provides a pillar of fire to guide them by night and also provide warmth. Because you know that those deserts are bitterly cold. And then during the day, he provides a cloud that guides them by day and also protects them from the intense heat of the sun. He provides water for them to drink through a rock. Hello. And then not only that, imagine just the delicate uh, the fabric that they wore that was subject to such harsh work when they were slaves. God miraculously provided such that not even a single strand of fabric came undone from their garments. And what did the nation of Israel do? Well, they did what most of us tend to do. In an abundance of blessings that we enjoy, they complained and complained and they complained. It kind of reminds me of whenever we were in Disney World. Here we are and there's an abundance of blessings and, and yet we find ourselves finding the things that we complain about. Here's how the stories go as we advance the narrative. This is what the nation of Israel says to Moses in Exodus chapter 14, verse 11. Here's what they say. They said to Moses, well, was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you, you brought us out of the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? This is all your fault, Moses. Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone. Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. What are they saying? We loved it as slaves. We loved being in bondage. We hate being free where God is our king. We hate being provided for. They were complaining. And then listen to what Moses says to them in response in Exodus 16, verse eight. Oh, this is so sobering. Your complaints are against the Lord, not against us. I can't help but wonder if in the middle of an abundance of blessings and provision that we all experience some more so than others, but my goodness, we are so blessed as a people. I can't help but wonder if when we complain about our circumstance, if God maybe takes it personally. He says, you think you're complaining against this situation, but you're actually complaining against me. What I wanna to do today is I want you to think about the thing or things that you complain the most about. I want you to hear this message through the filter of what is it that I tend to grumble the most about? I want this to be personalized for you. Some of you would say, 
that maybe you complain most about being single. Like, uh, you know, all my friends are married and I'm, I'm just tired of being lonely. And, and I, I don't, you know, where, where's a good man or a good woman to marry? And, and a lot of my friends who are married don't even want to be married. And I want to be married and I'm not married. And she didn't serve the Lord. She got married and I serve the Lord. And here I am single. Or maybe it's the exact opposite. Maybe you complain about your marriage. You complain about your spouse. You know, uh, my husband, he, he snores too loud and he plays video games too long and he walks funny and chews funny and smells funny. You know, whatever, you know, something like that. Or maybe, maybe you complain about, you know, money being tight. It's paycheck to paycheck. And, and I mean, money's like water when it's spilled. It just goes everywhere. And how come we don't have any money? And, or maybe you complain about the size of your house. If I had a bigger house, I could invite everybody over for Thanksgiving, even though I don't want anybody coming to my house at Thanksgiving. I want to be able to say I could do it if I wanted to. Or maybe you complain uh, about, you know, an illness or, or maybe it's your job. I hate my job and my boss drives me crazy and meetings are boring. Or maybe it's something smaller. You complain about you know, traffic's bad and the weather's bad and Wi-Fi is slow and, and there's nothing good to watch on, on Netflix. What is it that you complain about the most? Have you noticed that when it comes to complaining, there's no supply chain shortage? It just keeps on and on and on and on and on. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves complaining just about everything. Now, I wanna clarify something today. This is a really important framework for us to see this message through, ready? The problem isn't traffic. Problem isn't singleness. The problem isn't our spouse. The problem isn't the weather. The problem isn't that Netflix lacks originality and isn't providing shows for us to watch that meets our entertainment criteria. The problem is that we have taken our eyes off the goodness and grace of God and we have placed it squarely on ourselves. I wanna say that again, because I really want you to feel that. The problem is that our spiritual enemy has distracted us and deceived us into believing that life is all about me, that I'm the gravitational center of everything. He's tricked us into taking our eyes off the big grace of God and placing it on the smallness of myself. And as a result, we are prone to complaining about a lot. And when we complain, here's the terrible outcome. We are killing our joy. Joy is like, a, or complaining is like a silent assassin, if you will. It's kind of like carbon monoxide. It's very difficult to detect the effects of complaining. And if we keep complaining about every little thing before we know it, it's killing me softly. So what do we need to do? We need to protect our joy. Now, when I speak of joy, let's not confuse it with happiness. You know, Pastor Bill last week, he set up this series. If you didn't listen to his message, go back and listen to it. It lays a great foundation for our study in the book of Philippians, which we'll get to in just a moment. There's a difference between happiness and joy. And there, happiness is based on happenings or happenstances. When something favorable happens to me, woo, I'm happy. Maybe it's a promotion at work. Maybe it's that my kids don't complain and argue when we're in public. Maybe it's that, um, you, you know, you, you get some sort of material blessing, a bigger house or a boat or something good happens. We feel happy. We get a, a, a jolt of serotonin. Things are good. But the problem with that is, is that happiness is here one minute, it's gone the next. You know, we're, we're one criticism. Uh, you know, we're one uh, scroll. We're, we're one uh, relationship challenge away from our happiness disappearing whenever life gets hot. Joy, on the other hand, is constant. It's built on a firm foundation. It's something that never leaves us. Why? Because joy is built on Jesus, 
unchangeable, unshakable, now and forever Jesus, my hope, my, my healing, my helper, my savior, the one who delivered me from the dominion of darkness and into his glorious light, the one who, who bought me with a price, the price of his blood, who defeated sin and death. So I too might experience the newness of life now and eternal life later. My joy is found in Jesus. Now here's the thing, joy being experienced by us That's God's job. I love how David said in Psalm 51, he referred to this joy that he had found as the joy of his salvation. There it is. My joy is found in knowing my creator through faith in my savior. That's the joy that God gives to me in full at the point of salvation, when I trust Jesus as my savior. So God gives us joy, that's his job, made way through Jesus, but protecting my joy, keeping my joy, that's my job. My joy is my job. So today what I want us to do is, I want us to pretend like we're Kevin McAllister in Home Alone. Is it too early to make a Christmas reference? I don't think so. I've seen some of y'all putting your Christmas lights on your house. Raise your hand if that's you. Stop it, cut it out, don't do that. It's too early. Let's be like Kevin McAllister for a minute. And you remember at the end of the movie, he prepares his house and he sets up all those booby traps. And then for a minute, he like, he removes this suspension of disbelief. Like you're looking at his story unfold and he looks right at the camera. And you remember what he says? He has this little BB gun. This is my house and I have to defend it. Remember that? This is my joy and I have to defend it. My joy is my job. I'm not a fish. I'm not a goldfish. You can't put me in a bad mood bowl. No one can steal my joy. No one can rob me of joy. No one can take my joy. It is mine because Jesus is mine and I am his, but I can certainly kill it, squash it, throw it away or set it aside. So I've got to protect my joy. All right. So what do we do? Let me give you a simple way to, to, to keep your joy. You ready? Quit complaining. What? Okay, let's do a little exercise real quick. This is gonna be really fun and therapeutic for some of you. Turn to somebody and just tell them, quit complaining. Oh, well, I'm, I'm nervous for some of you. You turned your head so, so fast, you're gonna have whiplash and you leave today. Quit complaining. Did that fix anything? No. If you're a parent, you know, we try that with our kids. They're whining, stop whining. Quit complaining. And do they say, oh, thank you for bringing that to my attention. I didn't realize that was an option. Thank you, mother, father, done. No, that don't work. If it doesn't work on kids, it doesn't work on adults who know better. Quick complaint. Now that would be really easy to do. I mean, you imagine how much, how much prep time that would save me if I could just come today and know that's all. Hey, it's a good day to be in church and today is no different. Welcome to all of you. And thank you for joining us online. Hey guys, quit complaining in the name of the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit. God bless you. I mean, that'd save me hours of prep time. But here's what I know. Just because that'd be easy doesn't mean it'd be effective. Oftentimes, the easy route and the effective route are diverging. The route that God would have me go down is not the easy, but it's the most effective. And it's easy to talk about complaining because we do it so much, don't we? Guilty as charged. I mean, I've been looking to myself. The Lord's been saying, you've been preparing this sermon for them but it's actually for you. I mean, he's been working on me. It's easy for us to complain. I would imagine some of you complained on your way to church today. 
We're running behind. We're always late. You make me late. No, you make me late. And then you get in the car and you're like, we got to go to Starbucks because that's what we do. And you go to Starbucks. The line's too long at Starbucks. If they stop being so friendly at the window, we'd actually be able to get out of here on time. And you come to church. I don't like the music. They didn't play my favorite song. And then you looked at me and you go, where's Bill? Where's Bill? Stuck with this guy with tight pants. Know what you're saying? Be easy for me to just say, Quit complaining. But I realize if it's cheap, it's not built to last. If that's all it was about, you would comply, I'd comply for about as long as it takes for me to go pick up our kids or go to the restaurant at lunch. I want us to have joy that's everlasting. Isn't that what the Lord promised to give us? Joy, unspeakable joy that's everlasting. He's made good on his promise but we're falling short on ours. We got to keep it. We got to protect it. And how are we going to do it? We're going to conquer a complaining spirit today. And to do that, we're going to look at a powerful passage from Paul, the apostle that he wrote as a letter to the church in Philippi. Now, if you're here last week, you remember that Paul is not writing this letter from lap of luxury in an ivory tower. Paul's writing this letter from prison, a Roman prison. He wanted to go to Rome desperately as a preacher. And yet he finds himself there as a prisoner. Now, if I'm Paul, I probably see this a little bit different because I know me and I have not arrived. I'm not where Paul is in my faith journey like he was in his. And I recognize that, boy, I'm striving. I'm working hard. I'm allowing God to get into the you know, deep crevices of, of my dysfunction to help me become more like Jesus. And because I know I'm not where Paul is, and it's not a comparison. I'm just being awesome to myself. If I'm where Paul is in prison, in a Roman prison, I couldn't help but start to wonder, God, what are you doing? This isn't fair. I don't deserve to be here. And remember what Paul went through? God, I've been shipwrecked, snake bitten, beaten with rods. Five times I've received 39 lashes. I've been cold, hungry, friendless, jobless. Uh, my reputation's been tarnished. I've been lied about, left for dead. And now I'm here in prison, shackled to a guard. It's hot, it's cold, it's dark, the food's bad, and the BO from this prisoner is so bad I want to vomit. That's what I'd be thinking. But Paul didn't. Paul had a different perspective about all of this. And that's what we're going to explore. We're going to have to look at three ideas that we see in Paul's life that allowed him to protect and keep his joy so that we may also as well. So let's take a look and see what, what Paul says. Here, in Philippians 2, verse 14, he's writing to the church in Philippi. Here's what he says. Do everything without complaining and arguing. That's a pretty high bar. That's a very high call, extremely high order. Why? Why do everything without complaining? Well, for a couple of reasons. He speaks in absolutes all throughout Philippians for, for a couple of reasons I would submit to you today. Number one is because God is absolute. He's not hot nor cold. He is who he is. He's not like a shifting shadow. He's reliable. He's trustworthy. He's the same today and forever. It's what Hebrews 13, eight says. Malachi 3, six says that God never changes. He, he is sturdy. He's a rock we can build our lives on absolutely without wavering. And so if we're gonna follow God, we need to at our best follow him absolutely without leaving any room for excuses. Otherwise we'll, we'll take the excuse route almost every time. So he says, do all things, not, you know, do most things. No, he starts with absolute, do everything. Wow, that's a high bar to try to get over. Why? So that no one will criticize you. Do everything without criticizing. 
and arguing. Why? So that no one will criticize you. If we're children of God, then we need to be like children of God. We need to look more like Christ. Do all things without arguing or complaining. The world complains about everything, especially around um, the, the pole season, which we're in right now. My goodness, there's garbage out there. So much complaining, arguing, fighting. And Paul's saying, hey, don't get into all of that. Rise above it, stay above reproach. Do all things without complaining to keep your joy and share your joy with others. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. Whatever you do, wherever you are, whether where it's word or deed, do all things without complaining or without arguing. There are a lot of spiritual reasons that are compelling for us to refuse to complain. One of which I would contend is that it's, it's, a, it's a way we can keep our joy, stay joyful in the Lord. But there's some practical reasons why it's important for us to refuse to complain about everything. I'll share one of them with you. There's a doctor, Dr. Travis Bradbury, and he wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence 2.0. And in this book, he talks about complaining. And he shares that when we chronically complain, we are rewiring our brain in such a way that we are predisposed to do what? Complain more. He says, negativity begets negativity. The more we complain, the more likely we will continue to complain. He also talks about something called confirmation bias. What that means is, is if I presume or I think something's gonna be bad or wrong, then guess what? When that time comes, I won't like it and I'll find plenty wrong with it. We're, we're predisposed, it's a confirmation bias. I see that in my house uh, at least three nights a week. At least three nights a week. Now here's how it goes. Chef Jessica prepares a delicious meal for our family. She plates it, she puts it on the table. And then one child who will remain nameless, whereupon seeing that food shouts, I don't like this, it's gross. She's never tasted it before, ever. But she has confirmation bias. She already believes that no matter what we serve, she is not going to like it. If you're a parent in there, come on and say amen, the struggle's real. And so sometimes we make her eat it because we have a rule in our house. You have to try everything at least one time before you conclude that you do or don't like something. Fair? One time. Gotta taste it at least one, one time. Other times, we don't force the issue because we're smarter than that these days. We've learned a little bit over the course of many years that we're just gonna pick and choose which battles that we fight and try to you know, live or die on. And sometimes we're like, fine, you know, we'll just throw it away or I'll eat it. And we go into the pantry and what do we get? Shells and cheese. Come on, somebody, you know, that's a heavenly gift from above. Our kids will starve without shells and cheese. Come on, parents, they all said, amen. Man, so we'll do that. But it's confirmation bias. She thinks she won't like it. And so sure enough, she doesn't like it. And we do the exact same thing when it comes to complaining. We just, oh, today is gonna be a bad day. Oh, I, oh, I knew traffic was gonna be bad. You scroll on Facebook, yep, yep, everyone's fighting and arguing. That's what I thought was gonna happen. You know, all, all, men, are, all men are jerks and, and they're not, but we say that, or all, all women, they just wanna use me, whatever it is. We have these thoughts that we say and they are confirmed because of our bias and we continue to repeat the pattern of complaining and of whining. So practically it's important for us to, to refuse to complain so much because it will beget more and more complaining. We complain a lot because of our bias, but instead we can be like Paul. I love how we can refuse to get into that cycle of complaining with the power of our mind and our words. Paul was a master at this. Remember, he's in prison. 
He has a lot of reasons to complain. I listed a lot of the things he went through in his life and it was tough. But instead of complaining, what did he do? He thought on what's good, what's right, what's true, what's noble, what's pure, what's lovely, what's excellent or praiseworthy. He thought on those things. Why? Because he understood what fills, spills. What I put in comes out. It's confirmation bias in the reverse. If I'm thinking that God is with me, God is for me, then I'm likely gonna see God with me and for me in my everyday life. We can adopt that same mentality. So let me give you those three things. This is a mentality, three things we can do to try to conquer a complaining spirit so we can keep our joy. Thought number one, we're gonna consider our options. Consider my options. If you're taking notes, write that down. Consider my options. There are things in our lives that are challenging, that, that are negative, and they're adverse. We don't like them. They're wrong. That we actually have the power to solve those problems. I contend that maybe even most things, most things we complain about, we can solve. Um, I'll give you a good example. I do this all the time. This is something I'm working on. I complain about this a lot. Um, and it happened last night even. I was reminded of this yesterday evening. We went over to my sister-in-law's house because my nephew was turning 21. It was a big shindig and they had a smorgasbord of food. It was wonderful. It's like the land of Canaan, just flowing with milk and honey and candy and charcuterie boards and fancy stuff. But what really caught my eye is they had like 15 pounds of meat barbecue right there. They had sausage and turkey and chicken and all that stuff. It was so good. So what did I do? I went in for a plate full, then a second plate full. Then I got tired of eating it on a plate, so I put it in a cup, because I've never had barbecue in a cup before, and I wanted to try it. So I put potato salad in there. I put those baked beans in there. I put the chicken. I put the sausage. I grinded it all up, and it was delicious. And about three quarters of the way through that cup of barbecue, I started to feel awful. Oh, my stomach hurts. You know, women, you can get sick and be like, oh, whatever. I got, I got things to do. I got to do laundry. I got to take care of the kids. I'm fine. I'm fine. Men, we get sick. We're like, Rrr! like we're falling apart. That was me. My stomach's hurting. I'm, ah. Oh. I mean, I, I think it's subconscious because like I'm not trying to look weak, but I think subconsciously I was trying to draw attention to myself because I'm just about crawling on the floor. Ah, oh, my stomach's hurting. Finally, Jessica comes over to me and she's like, what's wrong with you? I'm like, ah. So full. Oh, my acid reflux is really flaring up. It's just awful. She's like, well, you had two full plates and barbecue in a cup, and you're holding a plate full of cake. Like, dude, you can solve this problem. That's true. I can. But I don't. And I complain about it. That's all me. For you, it may not be you, know, you overeat. You eat for a family of seven, although you should eat for one. Maybe for you, it's I can't stand my job. I hate my job. You know, just everything about it, it's just terrible. I, 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 you know, I hate it. You're not stuck. Freshen up your resume. Put some feelers out there. You can do this. You're not stuck. Or maybe it's, you know, I'm tired of being lonely and single. There's a lot of people in this room and outside of this room. You don't have to stay lonely. Be vulnerable. Put yourself out there. Meet somebody. Say hi to somebody at Whataburger. Man, true love can happen at Whataburger. I don't know. Join a life group. Get into a Bible study. Meet some people. You don't have to continue to complain about something you have the power to solve. Or maybe it's, you know, you're, I'm, I'm tired of, you know, what, I'm tired of traffic. I'm tired of traffic. My goodness, thank God that we have a car to sit in traffic in. Like there's a lot of things that we complain about that we have the power to actually solve. I feel far from God. Here's some good news. You may feel far from God, but God's not far from you. You have the power to change that. 
why don't we re-implement the discipline of a quiet time? Let's, let's sit with the Lord in scripture and prayer and, and worship, draw near to him, he'll draw near to us. There's things we complain about, challenges that we encounter, that we actually have the power to solve those problems. So I have to consider my options. Do I have the power to solve it? If so, I'm gonna bring my A game. I'm gonna face this challenge. I'm gonna solve the challenge. But there are other times when we don't have the power to do that. We have another option. And that option is if I can't change the problem, I'm gonna change my perspective. I think that's what Paul would say. I think he'd say, if you can't change the problem, change your perspective. Remember Paul, he's chained up and can't change it. He didn't wanna be a prisoner. That's where he found himself in. Instead of whining and complaining about it, he couldn't change the problem. He changed his perspective. Listen to what he says in Philippians 2, verse 17, as he changes his perspective about his imprisonment. Verse 17, but I will rejoice even if, oh, that's so powerful. Even if, I'm gonna say it again. Even if, I will rejoice even if I lose my life pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. What, you're trying to tell me, Paul, that I can experience that too? I can receive it too? Yes, I want you all to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice and I will share your joy. How could Paul be in prison, changed up or chained up and not being able to change the situation? How could he remain so joyful 16 times in the book of Philippians? How could he remark of joy or rejoicing? How? It's because Paul understood that he was not the center of the story but God is the center of the story. He understood that although he is in a situation that he would not bring upon himself or other people, he understood God is doing something. God is at work. It's not clear right now, but it's coming into focus. I believe that God can work all things together for my good and for his glory. That's what compelled him to say in, first, in Philippians chapter one, verse 12. Listen to what he said. He says, now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me, talking about his imprisonment, has actually served to advance the gospel. Oh, that's so good. What is he saying? He's saying, I'm a prisoner, but who's really chained up? Because the way I see it is that God has placed me in prison in Rome, a place I longed to go to preach. And here I am in a place where I have influence with the, the people who are in authority, the Roman soldiers who can proliferate the gospel. I'm chained up to the soldier. Wait a minute. Maybe I'm not the one chained up. Maybe he's chained up. 24 hours. I'm chained up to a different soldier every shift rotation. I get in fresh meat, virgin ears to be able to tell about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Who's really a prisoner here? He has to listen to me give a sermon for eight hours every single day. And I get to tell him of how I used to be a persecutor of the church, that I was a wicked man at heart. And I went to seek out and kill and destroy Christianity once and for all until I met Jesus, the resurrected Jesus who changed me from the inside out. Let me tell you about him. He gets to advance the gospel because he's in prison. His perspective changed. It's not about me. It's about God. How can God use my situation for his glory and for my good? So here's my question. What are you chained to? What challenge are you facing that you're chained to? You, you can't change it. Option one doesn't work. I, I can't, when I consider my options, I can't change the problem. I'm chained to it, but I can change my perspective. 
I can choose to believe that God is with me, God's for me. He's working a plan together for his glory and my good. I may not be able to change my situation, but I can change my perspective. Consider your options when you face a challenging situation. The second idea is to cast your cares. Cast my cares. God cares about what we care about. He's intimately familiar with all of our ways, the Bible says. He cares about our disappointments. He cares about our distresses and he wants us to bring it to him. Look, what I'm about to say is worth the price of admission. When we face problems, let's not post on Facebook. Let's pray to the father. Come on, somebody. Boy, that would help a lot of people out, wouldn't it? We have a father who loves us. Facebook doesn't care about me, but my father in heaven does. And when I face challenges, I can cast them to, to, to the Lord. I can bring them to him. And he welcomes all my cares, all my concerns, all my complaints even. There's a time with Paul where he was so deeply aff afflicted with an injury. He called it a thorn in his flesh. Now, we don't know if that was emotional, if it was mental, if it was physical or relational. We don't know. But it was severe enough that he talked about it in 2 Corinthians 12 when he wrote to the church in Corinth. And listen to what he says about how he dealt with this thorn in his flesh. He says, Three different times I begged the Lord. I begged the Lord to take it away. Well, what's Paul doing here? He's casting his care on the Lord. He's saying, I don't want this. I don't wish this on my worst of enemies. This is what I'm dealing with. God, I beg you to take it away. Please take it away from me. I'm casting my cares on you. And listen to this. Each time, each time God said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. Then Paul concludes, okay, well, I'm glad then. I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. What is he saying? He's saying that if I can't change my situation and I cast my cares on the Lord, I'm gonna change my perspective. I'm gonna be glad knowing that my weakness is going to be a weapon that God is gonna use against my enemies and also as a way to tell people about the goodness of God. How many of you know that there's somebody that you admire that you admire their strengths, but you relate to their weaknesses. I see God more through people's struggles than I do their victories when they lean on the Lord through them. That's what God is saying. Whenever you trust in me, you lean on me and you don't let your weaknesses, you don't let your pain stop you from finding purpose. When you trust in me, people are gonna know that I am God because you won't be able to get through this without me. He changed his perspective. He cast his cares on the Lord. And then finally, count my blessings. Count my blessings. Oh my goodness. There's so much for us to be thankful for. Is there not? So much. I love how Paul, when he opened up his letter to the church of Philippi, the first two verses, he's given an introduction. Hey, I'm Paul the apostle. And, you know, Timothy, he's my boy. And we travel together. And, and, and then he gives this quick greeting and then boom, he pivots, pivots in verse three to give him thanks. He's like, hey, I'm Paul. Timothy's my boy. We're traveling together for the gospel of Jesus. I'm so thankful. Look at that. Here's what he says. In verse three, Philippians one, verse three. Every time I think of you, talking about the Philippians, every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I make my requests for all of you with joy. Why was he doing that? He's trying to keep his joy. And he knew that complaining about a situation would kill it. He wants to keep it. He understood that it's better for me to count my blessings than count my burdens because I can't be both burdened and be blessed. I can't both grumble and be grateful at the same time. So what did he do? He counted his blessings. 
He went back and recounted them. Okay, let me think about how the Philippians have blessed me. Oh man, they are the one church who's been with me until, from the beginning until the end. And then in verse four, he caps it off with some more thanksgiving. In Philippians, I wanna thank you for this fragrance that you gave to me that I've been able to use to be able to have some, some resources to advance the gospel. He counts his blessings, he recounts his blessings, and he keeps counting them. Why? Because he wants to keep his joy. And he knows that you can't both grumble and be grateful at the same time. And that gratitude's the gateway into joy. And so he does. And so here's what I do, because I'm susceptible to complaining about a lot of stuff. Boy, you and I, we could get together and we could just complain all day long. We can go toe to toe. I'm telling you, I can do it. So here's what I do. I have to count my blessings and be intentional. And sometimes I have to start with the obvious that's often overlooked. Because when I'm grappling for something to be grateful for, it's hard to find like the big wins, a promotion or, or something huge. So we have to start with the obvious that's easily overlooked. I'm talking about us going preschool on this thing. God, thank you for food. Thank you for friends. Thank you for church. Thank you for nature. Like start with common grace and express gratitude for it and then keep counting. Count it. Let's rack up the, that gratitude like the national debt. Come on, somebody. We're going to keep it going. Keep counting those blessings. Why? Because we want to keep our joy. Joy is my job once I know Jesus. And one way I can keep it is by counting up my blessings. The second thing I would do after I start with the obvious that's overlooked is I'd go back to the very thing I complain about the most and I'd offer gratitude for it. Here's what I mean. I don't like my job. God, thank you I have a job. My kids argue all the time. God, thank you that I have kids to hold. God, I'm tired of being single. And my singleness will not go to waste because I can press in and have the most beautiful relationship with you in this time. God, I'm tired of traffic. I'm thankful I have a car to sit in traffic in. You see how this works? We're, we're reshaping, we're changing our perspective. So why? So we can keep our joy by counting our blessings. Let me leave you with this last thought. David, King David, man, he complained a lot. Like if you ever wanna feel good about your life, read Psalms. Like, wow, he complained about a lot of stuff, but he also counted a lot of blessings too. And in this Psalm, King David he reminds himself of just how blessed he is. Psalm 103, two through five. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. He forgives all my sins. He heals all my diseases. He redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. He fills my life with good things. Some of us need to be reminded today that our joy isn't in our situation. Our joy is in our savior. What does God do? What does our savior Jesus do? He forgives our sins. He crowns us with love and mercy. He gives us a salvation that can't be taken from us. We'd be so careful not to allow complaining to be crowned king of our lives. That's probably what belongs to Jesus. And the best way I know how to do it is not simply just to quit complaining, but maybe to consider all my options. Can I change it? I'll change it if I can. If I can't, I'm gonna change my perspective. Cast my cares on the Lord. He loves me and cares for me and he's with me through it all. I'm gonna count my blessings. I'm gonna do it diligent, diligently. I'm gonna do it daily. Why? Because my joy was purchased with a very high price, the price of the blood of God's son, Jesus Christ. It's worth me fighting for. His joy given to me is his job. My joy in protecting it 
is my job. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for the joy that we have in Jesus. And I, I know there are people in this room today that are dealing with something that they can't change. Like Paul, he was chained up, couldn't change it. It may be a financial stress. It, it may be an illness. It, it could be a relational burden. Whatever it may be, Lord, we don't take that lightly. You don't take it lightly. What is this about? This is about them returning to the source of joy. It's not in the challenge they face. It's in the triumph of Jesus. So I pray for all my friends here, whether we're complaining about something so small or we're dealing with something so big, that we'll be reminded that you are Lord of it all. And that our joy is in you. It's found in you. It's fulfilled in you. And that we'll be vigilant to keep it and protect it by conquering the complaints that we perhaps are so easily ready to give. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.